Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Not So Rare podcast. This is Taylor Lewis with Liz Beauvais, and we are here to kind of explain the journey Liz has had as a rare disease patient this week, managing work, managing her health appointments, and um, a recent kind of thing that's come up and been difficult for her, but had a little bit of a silver lining in it. So Liz, can you tell us how you're doing this week? I'm doing okay, guys. Um, thank you all for listening. It's been been almost a roller coaster of a week. Um, I I originally was scheduled for an IR procedure at the beginning part of this week, and that went well. Um, but as many patients know, um, sometimes procedures might take a little bit more out of you than you expect. I actually took two days off for it, and Taylor, I don't know about you, but I feel like I cringe every time I take like an extra day off of work because you have this bank that you're taking time out of and it's going to get empty soon. Yeah. And I know some listeners may be curious if they don't know already. Can you explain a little bit about what an IR procedure is for those who don't know? Sure. So IR stands for interventional radiology. Um, And there's a couple different types of conditions that tend to rely a lot on IR um, and vascular anomalies, lymphatic anomalies, anything vascular lymphatic does tend to also have an IR component to it. So what I, so what I had done is I had some lymphatic fluid drained from my spleen and they do that through needles and they're ultrasound guided needles. So it, it's you go into what looks like an operating room, but there's also either an ultrasound machine or some other sort of imaging that's there with them that the radiologist is able to use to actually do the procedure. And it's intended to be less invasive than actual surgery um, and a lot, lot easier recovery and just a lot faster in general than having to do a full surgery. Can you walk us through some of the prep of what helped you prepare emotionally, physically for this procedure and what that liked and looked like in coordinating care with your doctor? Sure. So, so, um, my procedure was on Monday and I knew that I would be anxious. I know we've talked a lot about how we manage our anxiety and how we prepare for different things with our with our health. Um, so I decided that last weekend was going to be a fun weekend. I went to a garden on Saturday, um, had some really good food. I went to an amusement park on Sunday. I really just did stuff that like, I wouldn't have to think about what I was doing. And then on Monday I woke up and I spent some time with my dog. We went for a nice long walk. I had a really, really good cup of coffee at my favorite local coffee shop. And then I drove into the city. Um, So from a personal standpoint, I did everything we've been talking about from a self-care perspective. And I did it all in one weekend. Um, From the coordination side, it's a little bit different in that both Taylor and I are kind of trapped between pediatric and adult health care systems. And so there's a lot of coordination of trying to figure out what system you're going to have this procedure in. Which, what doctor is it going to be? Is it a doctor that's been within your case for a while or someone that's new? Or do we bring in a couple different doctors just in case there's some issues? So 
we've kind of been going down this journey of trying to get this scheduled for a little while now. And, um, I was very thankful they were able to get it scheduled, but it, it also is hard when half of your time is just waiting to get something scheduled and trying to figure out what to do when it's outside of your hands. It's up to the doctors, it's up to the hospital systems, but as a patient, there's really not nothing you can do about it. It sounds like in this past week, when we've talked a lot about control and having that loss of control, that what you did is you really kind of like took over and said, well, I can't control like coordination of my appointment, but what I'm going to do is like, make sure I'm taking care of me and get all that really good self-care in and focus on ways of relaxation, which is awesome. And I think that's what we have to do. Um, and I'm probably the worst person to be speaking about this because I'm so terrible at doing it myself, but there's only so much we can control. And it's hard when you're in the moment of panicking or freaking out or being concerned about something that's outside of your control and there's nothing you can do. But I had a great weekend leading up to this week. And that was because I knew that I needed to take care of myself and I found ways just so I wouldn't have to think about my rare disease. I'm wondering, like, leading up to it, what comes into mind when I think there's a lot of preparation too, even when we have dogs and I know our peers have kids, like what does that look like in making sure they're taken care of? Because you can't always bring them into a hospital setting, especially our little fur babies. I don't know how my, my, I don't know if my fur baby, we can call him little, he's 63 pounds and large. (laughs) I don't know what he would do if he was ever in a hospital setting. I feel like that might not go very well. <laughs> yeah, I know Chewy would try and get in like the hospital bed. He's he's a big boy. He's like 92 pounds and just like massive. Like not even like chunky boy. He definitely gained some quarantine pounders, but he lost a bit of that. But he's just like a big boy and he thinks he's a tiny little poodle. He thinks he's like, I think, a lap dog. And just lounges everywhere he could be. Mine is the same. So I do not have kids, but I do have butterscotch or we call him butters. And I am very lucky that I somehow taught butterscotch to sleep in. Um, I don't know how I did it. I am a person who loves sleep. And I think a lot of that has to deal with just exhaustion, both mental and physically from, from everyday life, disease life work, school. Um, but I do enjoy sleeping in on weekends and he's been very great about going into his crate when he needs to. And so I, I've have a couple different people who have access to our house. So if we are in an issue, there is an issue. My neighbor's always willing to come over and take him out. Um, we have a walker who's wonderful, who would also take him out. So it's really kind of finding that network of who do you trust and who would be willing to step in? But these are also people that would normally step in, even if I didn't want them to. I get texts from my neighbors saying, hey, can I take butters for a walk today? I really miss him. So it's building that network that truly cares. And it's not just reaching out to someone when you need it in a panic. I think that's a really good point to make. And I know this sounds kind of silly, like coordination for our dogs, but it's really real because Sometimes we don't know when we're going to end up in an ER. Like sometimes our night goes a certain way and we don't think that's where it's going to go, but it does. And 
to remember to have like that person that worst case scenario, you know, can really step up and step in. If anyone out there has been in an ER, which sadly, probably you all have been in an ER at some point in your life. Those visits take forever. Um, The other half of my week was I ended up in the ER at the end of the week. So I ended up in the ER two days ago and I was there for 10 hours. And that was even a short visit in an ER. So it it really is a lot to try to figure out how to coordinate yourself, but then also what people or pets or other things are dependent on you in order to even make those appointments possible. So I want to hear, walk us through from the very beginning of your day in the morning, waking up. And I think you worked a bit in the morning. Is that right? It is. So... Going back to my week, um, took off Monday and Tuesday, and I I actually was dreading Wednesday because it meant that I had two full days worth of appointments and emails and people needing me to all kind of cram in to get caught up. So I had like 12 to 13 meetings on Wednesday. I don't even think I got anything done. I think I spent the entire time in meetings. So if anyone out there who works with me, I'm sorry. Nothing really got accomplished except me talking to you on Wednesday. So Thursday came around um, and I got an email from my insurance that something had been denied for a second time. And I knew that I would get this before my doctors get it, before anyone else got it. So I figured... I may as well just send this over to them. And I was like, no, I'm not just going to send it. I'm going to call them. So I made a call. It's probably about lunchtime. So I've worked like a half a day at this point. And it was good that I called. Um, I explained everything. And then I I was just chatting with the person I was talking with. And um, they were asking how I was doing. And I was explaining some of the symptoms I've been having, but that I wasn't really concerned about them. They are normal. I think as rare disease patients, sometimes things hurt and you live with it. It's just kind of how it is. But maybe I said it in the wrong way, or maybe I put too much emphasis, or maybe someone was a little bit more concerned. Um, The next thing I know, I have a couple nurses calling me a couple hours later, and they've talked to my doctor. And the answer is maybe I should go to the ER to get checked out. So this is like two o'clock on Thursday. And we haven't really talked about it a whole lot, but one thing that I have been told and have learned is there's certain hospitals you go to if you have a rare disease, because you just know you're not going to get stuck. And there's others that don't. So for me, the hospital where I was least likely to get stuck is like an hour and 15 minutes from my house. So by the time I got life together and really got on the road. I didn't really get there until 5 p.m. But I was just scared I was going to get stuck. I was scared that they were going to run a scan and see something weird, which it's going to look weird because my normal is weird. And I was just scared that I was just going to get stuck in this hospital and not really have a way to get out, not really have a way to like not get trapped into some sort of rare odyssey because a doctor is trying to investigate something that they don't have in their system. So getting stuck is a very real fear. A lot of us have when it comes to going to the ER or any kind of visit related to somebody who doesn't necessarily know our disease so well. 
that was always something that was a fear of mine when I was in college that I knew I needed to go to the ER. I knew I probably needed fluids, antibiotics, whatever it may have been at the time. But I always had this feeling like I need to go home tonight because I have school tomorrow. Or, you know, now Liz is feeling I need to go home. I have these obligations tomorrow. I have work. I have all this stuff I'm trying to juggle. And it's a fear that, oh my gosh, what if this is a situation like before where I get stuck and a week goes by, a month goes by, like what we have had to experience. And I think the other thing too, is I had already taken two days off of work this week. So from a sick day perspective, I only get five sick days in a year. I do have other vacation days, but I only have five sick days. I've already used two of those. And I'm now telling my doctors, hey, I have to leave work early. I'm going to go back to the hospital. There's also that fear of like, do they actually believe this is what's happening? Are they actually understanding what's going on? I've taken off so much this week. Normally, you don't take off all five in the same week. Yeah. And that's difficult because if we're taking off all five in a week, hopefully it's because we're doing something fun or going on a vacation. But oftentimes that's a realistic part of managing care too. When I have my infusions, when I wasn't doing so well on them, I'd have to take a week off. And and that's really challenging to juggle if you're getting these infusions once a month, once every three months. Um, because you're going to run out of days. And something I've done recently, and I'll just share this before going back to your story, is that I applied for as needed, like FMLA. So this was something my doctor discussed with me as being beneficial for, you know, like a job security type situation where I could opt for uh, these days off from work once my PTO is drained. That would be basically non-paid, but it would be For me, this kind of like support or recovery, knowing that I can have these days off and not feel like I'm going to lose my job, which is huge. That is huge. And I, I definitely am looking at my bank of days off. I I think I'll be okay. But like it, if you get stuck, you don't know what that looks like. You don't know what that means. And having that established for you before you even need it, I think is huge. So I get to the ER. And I, this is the first time I've been in an ER in a COVID society. Um, and it's weird. Like, yeah, I'm used to wearing the masks. I'm used to wearing heavier masks when I go to the hospital than I, when I'm just walking in the grocery store. But to see that in an ER setting is an additional level of traumatic, especially when you're already anxious. Things are Things are going on all around you and you really just want to go home and go to bed and just curl up and not have to deal with it. So triage went pretty quickly. They were really, really fast at getting me through triage, but I also think that they realized I personally didn't think I needed to be there. And yeah, some of the blood work and some of the other scans were a little off, but it wasn't like I was as sick as everyone else that's sitting in the waiting room. So That led to being sent back to the waiting room after triage for four hours, no, four and a half hours. So I was lucky to have someone who went with me um, and we tried to keep ourselves company. We found two chairs that we pushed over near the, the main entrance door to the outside world. 
basically because it meant that there was fresh air coming in every couple minutes. Um, the sliding door opened every time someone walked past and that gave us like our own little sense of safety in this waiting room. So walk me through because something really awesome happened this week when you met the doctor and for a lot of people, they may feel like if they don't have a rare disease, I hope this doctor knows what I have when I'm coming in. Most often that's like a given if you're going in for care they have to know how to treat you and stuff, but that's not always true for a rare disease patient. Sure. So after the four and a half hours, um, they take me back to a bed. And again, I'm thinking, why am I getting a bed right now in this ER? I really thought they were just going to do scans and I'd leave. So I'm getting, getting in the bed and the first doctor comes in and she's trying to get caught up on what's going on. And I, I feel like I have to explain my disease to every single doctor I talk to. And so I start explaining it and I start explaining my normal and she stops me. And I was like, okay, what's going on now? And she's like, you know, my very first patient had this. I've looked into this. I researched this. I I know a little about this. It's going to be okay. You we, we can handle this. Like, we're not going to admit you because we see that you have this disease. If it's different, if it's worse, yes, we will. But just because you have this, you're not going to get stuck because of it. And that was huge to me. That was, I I could stop worrying that someone was going to see a scan and see something light up and that I'd be stuck and not be able to get out and that they would actually listen to me and what I was trying to say before jumping to conclusions. And I think that's such a big moment in our rare disease, just evolution of just to kind of give the listeners an idea. I have never had that happen. This was Liz's first time as well. Like we normally, when we go to a place like that, I'm so fearful that the doctor's not going to know what to do with me. And oftentimes my uh, vascular anomalist will call over and give the ER doctor kind of a rundown of what I'm working with before we get there. Because sometimes we get there and we don't, we feel like not our greatest and, and they're asking us all of our medical history, which can be pretty extensive. And when we're not feeling good, it can feel like a lot to have to express to the doctor. So the fact that this person just knew how to work with you is so cool. And what was even better was I even, I think I even told her how great it was. She told me that a lot of times we get the, oh, this is fascinating, or this will be interesting, or wow, I didn't know about this. And doctors look at us with some sort of excitement glaze on their look sometimes, but she didn't, she treated me like an average patient, which is what I needed to be treated as. But she also had that level of compassion to know that I probably was super anxious because I was worried. And she did a really great job of trying to ease that worry right from the moment I got into that hospital room. Yeah. And I just have to highlight like what you've been through too this week, because I know you're not a person to like talk yourself up, but Liz leaves the ER at 4 a.m. That next day, we have a presentation that we gave to UPenn medical students and I think a couple other schools. I'm not 
um, familiar with where they were from, but we had this big presentation the next day and all Liz was worried about in that ER was, can I make this presentation? Can I get out of the ER to do this presentation? At one point I asked this doctor what the likelihood is, was of me going home because I really didn't want to have to give a presentation in a hospital again. It's like, that's not a good sign. Um, another thought crossed my mind of, I wonder if they're in the hospital right now and maybe they could just stop by and I could talk to them now. Yeah. And that's, that's a rare disease patient for you. I would say looking at today, since it, we're recording this on a Saturday and you had like a really hectic, busy week, anything that you want kind of the listeners to know just about like how emotional and difficult this week's been for you? It's been rough. I, I feel like there's been, it's almost like a roller coaster. Um, I was texting my boss yesterday, it was Friday, because when they found out that I didn't get to bed till 4 a.m., that I probably shouldn't be working. Um, and it really just is a lot of ups and downs. It it involves relying on people and feeling vulnerable that you're relying on them. I've had to rely on people from work to talk to everyone to tell them that I needed to move everything. So I didn't have to log into my computer. I had to rely on my roommate to be able to go and be, sit in a hospital with me for 10 hours. I had to rely on my dog walker who was texting me while I'm in the ER wondering if she needs to go over and see butters for one more time before she goes to bed. So, it, and I had another, another wonderful friend who dropped everything to drive me home from my first hospital visit earlier this week. So it, it's a lot of losing that control again. And for me, that's a big emotional downside to having a rare disease. I like to be in control. I don't like to depend on other people. And so take aside all the medical side of everything. There's just this personal side of, is this what life's going to be like? Is this what it's going to be like next month? Do I have to do this again? Or was this a one-time thing? It probably isn't. So I think all of that just leads to exhaustion and just wanting to sleep in on a rainy Saturday morning and curling up under a nice comfy blanket and talking to your friend about your problems, which is what I'm doing right now. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what we're here for. Right. (laughs) But I think like something I've learned too, and I, you're learning as well. And I'm still trying to like better this area is accepting those like support people in your life, like your go-tos that you can rely on when you feel like controls out of your hands and you can't drive yourself home from that appointment, that procedure, that infusion, and you physically need somebody to come in and take you home. And that should be okay. And I know that we have a difficult time asking for help, but those people are there the same way we would be there for them. Absolutely. And I, I also think too, part of the reason why it causes, causes me to feel all the feels, I don't even know what I'm feeling, but the reason why I get so emotionally drained from weeks like this is it, it's not, your disease is no longer just affecting you. It's affecting other people. And so as much as I try to shelter people or shelter my friends or shelter things, Sometimes you can't shelter them anymore. And sometimes you have to just bring them into your bubble. And that's scary. It's scary to have to explain to someone everything that's going on. It's scary to have to have them actually see it. So I I think as a rare disease patient, I try to shield that 
but it's exhausting. It absolutely is. And thank you this week for sharing this part of your everyday life with us and kind of processing what that's been like for you this week. I think it gives everybody a bit of an insight into what a rare disease patient deals with while working a full-time job. So thanks everyone for listening and I hope everyone has a good rest of their week. This has been the Not So Rare Podcast.